Well, good evening to all of you. Hope you're all doing well and you've been having a good week. And whether it's been hard or a pretty uh, busy or free week, that practice tonight would be a blessing, a balm to aching souls and refreshment to those that are weary. Uh, as a ministry, as a fellowship group, we have been journeying through the book of Romans. We've been at it for um, quite some time now. We are in chapter eight tonight. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Romans chapter eight. We'll be looking and studying verses 12 to 17. I'll go ahead and read our passage for us and then we will pray for the Lord's help. Romans eight, beginning verse 12, this is the word of God. So then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For you, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. God, we ask that by the very Spirit who leads us, that you would bless and guide our time, that you would be at work in our hearts to unravel us and leave us undone, that we might see how wonderful and wise you are to gift us yourself, that the Spirit would dwell within us to convict and then to conform us to the image of Christ, to help us feel the, the deep truths of Scripture until we must respond, until we relish and cry out, Abba, Father, to rejoice in how we have been reconciled and brought into your family, now your children. We can be confident and hope in you. And so use this time in a profitable fashion to build up your church to strengthen those that are beaten down and to call to repentance those who do not know you. Lord, we pray that we would be encouraged now through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, debt, as I'm sure many of us know, debt can be quite a daunting thing. You, know, you log into your Chase account and you check your credit card balance and you begin to shudder. Some of you are already uh, imagining that and quivering. Or you'll peer at your desk and you see the utility bills and the car payments stacking up, and it makes you nervous. Even if you have the funds to pay it all off, the very fact that you owe money nags at you. It bothers you. Debt takes a mental toll because you need to budget accordingly and have a steady flow of income. It hampers and influences how you spend your weekends. 
careful not to dip too heavily into your savings account. And financial debt is not the only kind of debt we can incur. Just think about friendships, favors exchanged. Think about people who bail you out in the time of need, only to remind you, you owe me. And most of the time they're joking, you know, but it can be serious. You know, it's the stuff of mobsters in movies where character is undone when the gangster cashes in on the favor owed and the compromised individual has to pay the piper. Against their conscience, this character has to follow through on some shady business deal. You know, service is owed, their hands stained, their innocence ruined. Now, whether monetary or relational, people don't like debt. And I feel like I'm preaching to the choir because most of you are Asian, and you know this. It's ingrained within you. It's probably why many of our parents have paid for cars in cash, even if that's not the wisest financial move. Debt is familiar to us. And debt is daunting because it is demanding. We don't like to have something hovering, hanging over ourselves. We don't like this unshakable sense of obligation. In other words, we don't like being at the mercy of another. And when favors are returned, when the amount due finally reads zero, there is something liberating about that. Exhilarating, right? Maybe you have felt that elation when your school loans were completely paid off, or if you're in the midst of it, you're looking forward to that day. Maybe you let out a sigh of relief when you've done your time and are no longer at the beckoning of another. And it feels like a huge weight is lifted off your shoulder. It's a pivotal landmark in your life. And from here on forward, life is different. Well, similar dynamics are in effect in our passage tonight. In our section of scripture, Paul expounds on how we have been absolved of the greatest debt possible. We are no longer, as Christians, enslaved to sin, a debtor to our flesh. Instead, as we begin to see just a couple weeks ago, we have been freed by God for God. That the Spirit of God dwells within us, appropriating the work of Jesus Christ and freeing us from the bondage of sin. Now, no longer condemned or constrained, we are led by the Spirit. And it changes us. It transforms everything. In Romans 8, verses 12 to 17, Paul takes time to unpack the glorious results of being led by this Spirit. Now, before we jump into our passage, we need to do a little recap Chapter 8 of Romans, Paul transitions to address how Christians operate. Now, we don't merely adhere to the law blindly. We don't attempt to keep the rules and regulations by our own efforts and strength. We know where that has landed us. Even today, we're still guilty, culpable, unrighteous, because no one can keep God's commands perfectly. But the good news of the gospel is that the righteous shall live by faith. A broken, destitute, frustrated, we look outside of ourselves and embrace and plead the power, credentials, and accomplishments of another. By faith, we trust in Jesus Christ. 
and being forgiven and reconciled. Salvation doesn't just cover up our solely past. It does do that, but it also has grand implications for our present and every day after. Yes, the penalty of sin has been paid by Jesus Christ, but his redemption also severs the power of sin today. And we begin to see this now in our current lives, in how we are being groomed and growing to become more like Christ. How can we be confident of this? Not because we're clever, not because we're disciplined, but ultimately because God has given us himself through the gift of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who applies salvation to us is the same Spirit who labors alongside us in sanctification, in our walk, in our aspirations to be like Jesus. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the grave places us on the same trajectory, and he guides us along the way. So the first result we'll see tonight of being led by the Spirit is that we are freed to fight sin. That as Christians, we are led by spirit so that we are free to fight sin. Look again at our text, verse 12. So then, brothers, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Paul starts this section with a tone of tenderness. Brothers, because what he is about to share is delicate even offensive. Though he draws us in softly, the apostle is firm. He speaks candidly with us. Brothers, if you are in Christ, if the Spirit dwells within you, he is leading you in a certain direction. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We're no longer debtors to the flesh. Paul is communicating the idea of absolute mastery. Who has your allegiance? Who reigns supreme? Who is your Lord? I read between the line, and the implication is since we're no longer debtors to the flesh, well, we must be debtors to something else. We're obligated to obey God. But Paul doesn't write this in and make it explicit. And I think the reason he does that is he refuses to confuse us. The two are not to be viewed in the same light as if they're interchangeable. We know this. Obligation can be very different depending on what or who you're obligated to. There is a huge difference between obligation to the law and obligation out of love. They might appear the same on the surface, but not when you dig a little deeper. You know, as a citizen... I am obligated to uphold the law. I shouldn't trespass on someone else's property. I should use the crosswalk. But there's no heartfelt participation, right? There's no riveting matter. It's sheer compliance. My role as an individual in society is to be legally obedient. But my responsibilities and obligations as a husband to my wife are more profound than keeping the law, or at least it should be. There's a personal element that surpasses, exceeds rote duties. Sure, as a good husband, I should probably plan dates and open doors, but I do not function and operate solely or sheerly 
based on compliance. My actions and behaviors stem and are rooted and spring forth from a loving relationship. Now, in both scenarios, action is involved, but peel back the chest, and the heart is engaged for one more than the other. We'll peel back our passage, and this is the kind of motivation underneath Paul's exhortation. The apostle and God is not after mechanical obedience. It's what distinguishes Pharisees from Christians. You don't need the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit to blindly follow religious rules. But you do need them to be reconciled to God, restored and put in right relationship with him, to obey out of love and the new life given. And this is how Paul is persuading us to throw off our old shackles, to put to death the flesh. It's black and white in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But, showing contrast, here's the alternative. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. One commentator notes, the believer's once-for-all death to the law and to sin does not free him from the necessity of mortifying sin in his members. It makes it necessary and possible for him to do so. In fact, this ambition, this desire and pursuit is not optional. It's not occasional, nor is it accidental. In this verse, the present tense verbs stress continual activity. This is supposed to mark us, distinguish us, that this is habitual. That by the Spirit, we are to be relentless in killing sin. And this may seem like basic Christianity. I know we read this verse and our response is rather ho-hum, maybe even apathetic. Heard this before, might be true, but sure is boring. But frankly, do you really believe what the Bible teaches? According to Paul, living and dying is just a matter of timing. You live according to the flesh only to perish an eternal death. Or by the Spirit, you spend yourself to put sin to death and truly live. Paul here is sounding the alarm. We are at war. You see, the most dangerous thing in battle is to forget you're in battle. That's when you're likely to make a mistake or let your guard down. That's when you're likely to become a casualty. And the apostle here is raising his voice to jolt us out of our stupor. The only people who stop fighting are those who are either dead physically or spiritually. We need tough passages, strong warnings like this verse, because Paul is commissioning us. Christian, go all out. There's no time in war to be cavalier or civil. There's no thought about how we look or who we're trying to impress. No, in war, your attention is focused, fixed on the enemy. It's kill 
or be killed. And yet I suspect many of us don't see things to be that dire. We handle our sin like how we handle a puppy instead of a grizzly bear. But to misjudge the situation is to jeopardize your life. Paul is charging us to be ruthless. So by his words, can I ask, do we talk like Paul? Do we think like Paul? Do we, can we resonate with what he is writing or is it too intense, too strange for us? Friends, do you approach your sin with a holy violence? You know, some of us can complain about sinful patterns and yet we ought to be scratching our heads when we're unwilling to do whatever it takes. I have never known anyone who matures in godliness with little effort or by giving up. No, led by the Spirit, you have been freed so that you fight your flesh. Fight your flesh. Don't feed it. Now, if you need help figuring out where your line of defense is weak, just do this. Just examine when your inner lawyer emerges. Is it when you get angry? You add more logs to the fire by justifying to yourself and to others why exploding at your parents is understandable because they're annoying. They're overbearing. They're always getting into your business. Or do you dismiss, diminish your lack of integrity by glancing around, comparing yourself with others? Well, my coworkers, they always round the corners and I don't mail it in as much as they do. Or how about this one? You rationalize. A click of the mouse, a clip or two. Pornography isn't hurting anyone, right? No one knows. But in all these conversations, all these arguments, who are we defending? Who are we led by? Our sin. Look, I get it. I'm in there with you, in the trenches. Old habits die hard. But I think Paul would tell us they still need to die. Too many of us, I fear, have grown too comfortable. We have accepted our complacency and forfeited one of the key disciplines God equips us for the fight against our flesh. We have lost the art of self-control. Self-control. But the call of discipleship can't be clear. The point of entry to following Jesus Christ is what? It's denying yourself, taking up the cross, and then you are ready to follow. I get it. Self-control is not as glamorous, noticeable as serving others, being generous with resources, preaching to the masses. But might I remind you, Self-control is divine, is the fruit of the Spirit. It is something we should be excelling in as Christians, cultivating and bearing in our lives. You see, to exercise self-control is to be controlled by the Spirit, that you're not seated on the throne. Christ is King, and by the Spirit, putting sin to death rehearses that reality that I no longer just operate on what I want to do, but what God has instructed. 
And I know this is no walk in the park. And so we plead for grace. We resolve in prayer. We beg of God as he leads us and strengthens us by his spirit. But we have to do our part. Labor with all your might to give no opportunity for sin to rear its ugly head. Kevin DeYoung said, we're never better off for having sinned against God than having obeyed him. Praxis, take extreme measures if you have to. You know, it might mean unsubscribing from Netflix because you can't stop binge, binging TV shows and wasting time. It might mean refraining from happy hour because you always succumb to peer pressure and getting drunk. It might mean public dates only or accountability software because you don't trust yourself when you're alone. But listen, I'd rather be drastic than dead. As the great Puritan John Owen said, be killing sin or sin be killing you. It's a famous quote, famous line from one of his dense works. Well, actually all his works are dense. Uh, but a particular one called The Mortification of Sin. I mean, by that title alone, you know it's going to be complicated and sophisticated. The Mortification of Sin. John Owen was this Puritan who wrote an entire book on this one verse, Romans 8, 13. And so it puts us all to shame when uh, we do our quiet times because I don't think any of us have written a book from one verse. Um, but I do recommend his work to you. Owen, as I alluded to, is not the easiest read. He's verbose, and he uses long sentences that often kind of look like paragraphs. But if you stick with it, his insights into Scripture are staggering and illuminating. In my humble opinion, the, the Puritans are just on another level. They are the best, objectively speaking. Um, and I know I have a tendency to exaggerate and be dramatic because it's fun, but for reals, God used the Puritans to change my life. Um, if you find the language too intimidating, Crossway actually has an updated and modernized version of Owen's book to call, I have it right here, um, it's called Overcoming Sin and Temptation. So you can tell this is a modernized version because it even has a beautiful, you know, <laughs> cover. Obviously, this wasn't how it was in the 16th century. But uh, this, this is a free copy um, that I'm going to give away right now. The only catch is you have to promise to read it. So look very carefully. It is, it is not a, a light read, but anyone, anyone want this? Uh, whoever raises their hand first, I, I can't see. Um, Michael, right? Okay, this is yours. Um, but again, the only catch is you have to promise to read it. I'll give it to you after. Uh, you are freed from sin, but now you are in debt to write a book report. <laughs> now, up to this point in the message, you know, it can sound a lot like behavior modification. You know, as if being led by the Spirit is, is our our desire to live this aesthetic lifestyle where we train ourselves to be monks. You know, kill sin, kill sin. But Paul doesn't want to give us the wrong impression. He shows how the incentive for fighting our sin is more than just strategizing, disciplining ourselves, and sheer willpower. Sure, it may involve those things, but ultimately the impetus is love. The second result of being led by the Spirit 
is in how we marvel that we're adopted with affection. That we're adopted with affection. Or let's return back to verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, and what's interesting is he doesn't say like, okay, this is what happens, here are uh, the, the results, the, the, the particular actions. No, he, he keys in on identity. For all those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. There's precision here, a pinpoint accuracy that most of our Bible translations kind of flatten out. Because in the original, in the Greek, it reads more woodenly as, for all led by the Spirit of God, these ones, these ones are the sons of God. This demonstrative pronoun raises a finger to spotlight a select group. Not all who claim to be sons of God are sons of God. The Bible says the giveaway is if someone is actually led by the Spirit of God. Now, if it's this simple, yet significant, it pushes us to figure out, okay, what does this exactly mean? After all, you might hear this kind of vocabulary tossed around between well-meaning Christians, right? I feel led by God to pursue medicine. I feel led to gift that person um, some money. I feel led by the Spirit to date her. It's a big no-no, right? Because what happens when the girl responds, I feel led by the Spirit to say no. You see the problem there. Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's actually led by the Spirit and who's not? Well, the issue is resolved when we understand being led by the Spirit has less to do with everyday decisions, trying to discern the will of God in the minutia. No, the idea is big pictured. It's about a life fully given over, governed by the Spirit. Just recall how God led the Israelites through the wilderness. He doesn't provide a play-by-play rundown of everything he's going to do or about to do. Sure, he gives some instruction to the Israelites, but in the end, he wants to teach them, to groom them, to mold his sons, the people of Israel, to adopt a particular posture to learn to listen and follow. And Paul is returning to this image. We are led by the Spirit insofar as we listen and follow God. It is not sophisticated. How do you know you're led by the Spirit? When you're obedient to God's will as revealed in God's word. And it's what we saw just in the previous section when you are putting sin to death so you might be alive to God. You see, verse 14 is really the other side of verse 13. The Bible may not spell out what job to take, who to marry, and what to eat for lunch. But as we have been studying on Sundays as a church, the Bible grants us wisdom from above. It calls us to be like Christ, to renounce the flesh and to grow in godliness, to navigate through occupation, marriage, and food with our aim set upon honoring the Lord. This is what it means to be sons of God. That little phrase might be a bit peculiar to us. It's a Hebraism, 
a Jewish way of describing what characterizes and distinguishes an individual or group. So for example, you remember uh, James and John in the Gospels, they are called sons of thunder. Pretty cool. Sons of thunder. But it's not because they had parents named Elizabeth and thunder. No, that's not how it worked. It's because James and John carried this reputation of being brash and loud. They were eager to call down fire to consume the Samaritans. They're as boisterous and flashy as thunder. Well, in our verse, Paul is emphasizing, underlying, sons of God are those renowned for their godliness, for how they resemble their heavenly father, because the spirit only leads us towards God, not away from him. And as obedience abounds in our life, so does our assurance. You can discern who you belong to by who you listen to. You know, if you tell my kids to go to bed, they're going to give you a weird look and blow you off. But when I instruct my own children, well, let's be honest, most of the time they blow me off too, but on few occasions, surprising ones, they will actually listen. Why? Because I am their father and they are my children. And this is what Paul is featuring in the next verse, verse 15. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, like in any relationship, rules are involved. But the more personal the connection, the less the relationship is driven by duty alone. Paul declares we don't aspire to keep commands as slaves in fear of crossing our master. Yes, we obey, but what drives our obedience, our primary motivation is we're family, we're sons. Now we may wonder, especially if we're female, why sons? I'm a daughter. Paul's not being insensitive here. It's just that back then, sonship, culturally, is how you receive family blessing and status. It may seem unfair and outdated to us, but even in some cultures today, the son is elevated to a privileged position. Well, in the ancient Jewish custom and culture, it was the son who enjoyed the birthright, the legal status. The point is, don't get hung up on this minor hiccup to miss the major blessing. Paul is communicating to us how fortunate we all are if we are in Christ, if we are led by the Spirit. Having received the Spirit, we are adopted, male or female, as sons, as those privileged and recognized, as those who have the best seat at the table, as those who have access and audience with God, which is what Paul hammers home, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word for father. Some theologians argue it's similar to how kids might say daddy or papa today. Others uh, like to put up a fight and reject it as a juvenile nickname, suggesting instead that it just stresses a personal relationship. Uh, But we're really just splitting hairs here because however you slice it, Paul is reveling in the intimacy we have as children. I mean, while the meaning of Abba is debatable, the next word isn't, right? It's clear, Father. 
There's a warmth in this verse, a committed affection between our Heavenly Father and His sons. And it serves us well to really mull that over, to extract all the nourishment until our souls are lifted. Because whatever we may say about Abba, it ought to be enough to leave us stunned and floored. You need to take this in. We are afforded the honor of addressing the eternal God of the universe by the same name that Jesus uses. Let that sit on your minds and on your hearts. We know it would be inappropriate to call someone else's girlfriend or boyfriend by their special pet name. That's reserved just for the couple. But in Christ, we are granted a greater audacity. It's outrageous, if you will. That the Son of God calls God Abba. And as sons of God, we can echo the same. How's that for motivation to pray? Christian, is this visceral for you? Excuse me for being sentimental, but does this touch your heart? Yes, our relationship with God is based on magnificent and robust truth. That's why we teach from the Bible here that it is our conviction as a church that we have nothing to say but what Scripture has revealed. But listen, these truths also produce strong affections. This verse is giving us a firm foundation for intense feelings. When you delight in a relationship, you're not running a cost analysis on all the pros and cons of knowing and relating to this individual. I'm sure you could, but at a certain point of intimacy, math is thrown out the window and you simply enjoy. Yes, we need to be students of God's word and have a solid grasp of the truth. But might I remind you, we pursue this not to satisfy some intellectual curiosity. The goal is rightly knowing the glory of God so that we might fully experience the goodness of God. Some of us are naturally emotional. Uh, We might be guilty of crying more than we breathe. For those of us with a more sensitive disposition, we need to anchor our feelings with the truth. But on the other hand, some of us are more inclined to be cerebral. Maybe we've even been accused of being human computers. You know, this input results in this output. Paul would have a word for us as well. Christianity is not merely about calculations and picking what's right. It's about relishing in a relationship, a crying out that comes from the gut, that appreciates our adoption by God. Praxis, is this the dynamic, the atmosphere, the feel of your faith? And I know that can be a dangerous question to ask. I will acknowledge our emotions are not always the best indicator of what's right and true. But let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. God has gifted us feelings, and when they accord and are grounded in the truth, well, then it's right to be passionate. The expression may vary from person to person, but perhaps we need to be stretched and corrected. 
Is there room in your walk with God for holy affections? Is your study of his word any different than your approach to biology and spreadsheets? Your prayers more than ramblings and mindless mutters? Is there awe and wonder at being adopted with affection by God, a heavenly father, and you know him to be so? Listen, God is not unabashed, or sorry, God is not abashed about declaring his love for his own. Are you? Should we remain unmoved? Paul unpacks how our adoption also sets us up for the future. And as sons, we will receive an inheritance. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if that was not good enough, he sweetens the deal. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And we like the sound of this. This is a good deal. An eternal windfall is coming. Now, Scripture doesn't have a whole lot to say on what this inheritance exactly is, but we are given a few breadcrumbs. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preaches how the meek will inherit the earth. If we fast forward to Revelation 5, the Apostle John relays a vision where we will reign with Christ. And so at bare minimum, when Satan and sin are vanquished, we will rule with Jesus and exercise dominion over the world, just as God originally attended in Genesis. So imagine a state of bliss, an eternal existence where there's only flourishing, peace, and harmony, where wholeness is evident in peak efficiency and everything, everyone functioning as God designed. Joy overflows, each second better than the previous. That's our future as Christians. That's the world we will inhabit. That's the world we will inherit. And at the center of it all is unadulterated worship of Christ. Praise ascribed to our glorious God, our Heavenly Father. And really, this is where our inheritance culminates. Not just in the gift, but the giver. And in Christ as adopted children, the best blessing is Him. The promise that overwhelms and delights our hearts is that we are heirs of God himself. And our cries and longings for Abba Father will reach its climax when at last nothing hinders us from fellowshipping with our maker and redeemer forever. But until that day, we hope, we press on. And Paul concludes by preparing us. He tells us the road to future glory. Yes, it is certain, but it is not without it's hardships. Look how he ends this section. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul is blunt. The path to glory is paved with suffering. It is not an easy road. And as we are burdened by life's difficulty, whether living in a fallen world or persecution and trials endured because of our allegiance to Christ, it all reminds us 
that we are not yet home. It only confirms the word of God and his promise to us. But beloved, suffering will not have the last word. Glory awaits. And so we advance forward, led by the Spirit. Now picture this. I, I hand you a set of new keys. You know, out of my vast riches and my extreme generosity, I have just informed you I'm giving you a mansion. You know, that's not a far-fetched hypothetical, but after jotting down your home address, you hop into your car to head over, to scope out the place. Along the way, unfortunately, you get a flat tire. It's a bummer. There's no denying that sucks. There's no pretending. It's not tedious to deal with. But here's the thing. I think it's obvious to all of us. The prospect of something far better overshadows this small bump in the road, right? Who cares? What's the loss of a tire when a luxurious house awaits? I'm not trying to diminish or minimize the trials, the sufferings you will experience in this world. It is very real. It is painful. But Paul's strategy to persist and overcome is by keeping our sights fixed on the prize. It's what he says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Right? This light and momentary affliction is preparing. It's actually pushing and helping us to see and feel the eternal weight of glory. That's Paul's method. He has us extend both hands. And in one, Paul puts the light afflictions we encounter in this fleeting life. And in the other, he places the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, which is to say it's a non-comparison. It is a no-brainer. Listen, there's no real choice when you hold monopoly money and a bar of gold. Praxis on this side of eternity, we're passing through, and the Spirit leads us. Every day we are brought closer home to a room prepared by Christ where God himself dwells, and God will see to it. He has gifted us his Spirit, freeing us to fight and kill sin, so that we might move forward, so that we might rejoice in adoption, which will be fully realized when we are with him forever. Let's pray. God, what a view we are given, that in this passage we are propped up so we see what awaits us. And more than that, we marvel at you, your wisdom, your majesty, your grace and kindness, and that you would redeem and ransom those who are lost, that you would see us in our bondage to our sin, bankrupt and spiritually dead, and you would grant us life through your Son, that you would give us the Spirit to quicken our hearts, that we might return, or repent and place our faith in Christ and be resurrected. Newness of life in which we have new affections, holy ambitions, godly desires. 
And though we still struggle and strain, though we are marred by sin that dwells within, by this corrupting world, we cry out, Abba, Father. We are reminded of our identity in Christ and our pursuit of him, our, our earnest desire to obey him, not out of fear, but out of love. And so help us, Spirit. We ask that your, your Spirit would be molding, fashioning us to be more and more like your Son. And may we, as Praxis, encourage uh, one another to press on in this race. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.